Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Right? right. Well, right. For the cr- We're going to start cranking. We're going to start the cranking. It's I'm, like the it's like the man in the middle of the earth. You know, he just sits on it and starts cranking. Uh, starts spinning the wheels. He's the cranking man. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they call him, even in Greek mythology. The cranking man. The cranking man. Hmm. I'm gonna have to look that up. You should. You should. Do, you should ask the internet that right now. <laughs> the interwebs. Mm-hmm. Oh, great interwebs! What do you tell me? <laughs> Uh, so we've got uh, we we've got uh, only a few uh, trailers to talk about, and they're both. I think they both represent a real low in American cinema. <laughs> Ironically, perhaps in Korean cinema as well. <laughs> right? I mean, right? Wow. Yeah, yeah. You might be right. I just can't. I can't. I can't take it. I can't take it seriously. Arnold Schwarzenegger is having quite a quite a year. I I can't tell if if his in his you know governorship was all just a you know just a stepping stone to get into different sorts of movies. <laughs> well, it hasn't worked. <laughs> it was a yeah. He's not in Anna Karenina. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Perhaps this one didn't work as I planned it. <laughs> I've got to go back to my planning. Oh man, Arnold Schwarzenegger is—he's uh, doing Expendables two. I thought it was a—it sounds like—and I—I didn't see Expendables one. I know he was—he had a, a part in that as well, right? He, a very bit part. You bit saw part. it. You celebrated that it's, movie. It's very—it's—it's it's exactly it? what, is what it? you're expecting it to be. Terrible, it really is terrible. No, I mean, it's enjoyable in its—in its. In its you know, schlocky action way. And Expendables 2 stands to be more of the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just trying to think. I was just trying to think who I could do this show with instead of you. And <laughs> because clearly our paths have parted. <laughs> no, that is not fair because I have not wow. seen the movie and I will. I will see the movie. I will see the movie. I will see them both. Uh, but I was surprised that he had a, a part, uh, uh, that he had a bit part in Expendables because, you know, he was still, uh, uh, an acting governor right. at the time and, and, uh, a bigger part, I understand it in Expendables too. And he is headlining the last stand. Yeah. And this is, you know, uh. A chance for him to get back into the ranks of bad movies being released in January. 
you know, he, he really, <laughs> he really is getting out on the on the right note. <laughs> oh, I mean, Expendables two, which actually opens uh, the day this goes live. I mean, it stands to be another fun romp. I think even Entertainment Weekly gave it a B, and uh, I haven't checked ratings about it. Um, one of these days, we're going to have a Rotten Tomatoes conversation, and we still haven't gotten there. Yeah, I know. But uh, yeah, Rotten Tomatoes is. Uh, you know, this may be, you know, three percent higher than the Born Legacy. <laughs> it may be next week that we have that conversation when we see the Expendables 2's performance and and watch how it uh, how it performs on Rotten Tomatoes. We may have uh, what's what's the word? Uh, um, cause know, cause. <laughs> yeah, yeah, catalyst for a conversation on uh, on Rotten Tomatoes and ratings, especially ratings kind of before the masses have seen the movies. That's the I don't know. It just looks bad. And so the last stand, the trailer of the last stand, you know, he's not the governor anymore. It's sort of a step down, I guess. And <laughs> he's only the sheriff. Maybe not in pay, but he's only uh, he's only the sheriff. And um, he drives. Uh, looks like he's driving a Chevy. There's a well branded Chevy in the logo <laughs> art in the poster. It is a well branded Chevy logo yes, shining yes, in the corner. You'd never guess You'd who never is guess. one of the uh, this, the product placement companies for this film. This is uh, directed by Kim Ji Woon. Kim Ji Woon, and uh, so it's it should be fantastic. But the one thing that I think we should note is that uh, this film also balances. If 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 Arnold Schwarzenegger, let's just say he's at the fulcrum of the of the um, of the the teeter totter, on one end of the dramatic scale of the the dramaturge teeter totter, we have. <laughs> The fantastic Forrest Whitaker. Which, who is always wonderful to watch. He is. He tr he is. And that's the, you know, when he, he, he this guy does the best reaction shots. Mm -hmm. And he gives, he gives good reaction shots. He does. Uh, and on the other end of the dramaturge uh, teeter-totter is the, uh, the fine and talented Johnny Knoxville. <laughs> what is what is fascinating about Johnny Knoxville is he he is fine and talented at a lot of things, neither of which, none of which, I, in my opinion, um, are you know uh, acting. I think well, he and is, you watch the trailer, and I think you see the entirety of his acting skills. Yeah, in every shot that he's in in the trailer, he has a look of complete. Uh, imbecility yes if i can use that as a word you, you can make that up and and i think that's what's so magical about johnny knoxville i am i am fantastically entertained by johnny knoxville like I, you when are. I watch him <laughs> when i watch the the you know the what is it jackass movies and the uh. thing i i don't i can't watch too much i think i've seen like the first 15 minutes of like every jackass well but movie. see you can't call those you, I no, mean, they're movies only because Th they they were released. Uh, are, they have the right running time yes. and they're playing theatrically. I, but they're not a movie. It's a reality show extended for a theater, and 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 you can't call it acting of what you see in those films. No, I wouldn't. We are here on this point. We stand in violent agreement. <laughs> violent agreement. I we are in violent agreement, and I think that Johnny Knoxville. I, I'm not sure that he is uh, he is providing any buoyancy to the last stand uh certainly not in the same way that he provides buoyancy to the jackass films that's that, what i'm gonna that's, that's gonna that be, is true <laughs> i'm gonna be democratic because you know i don't want him coming to my house 
because I think he would destroy it. <laughs> <laughs> he would staple something to your he would, uh, body. He would. And, there would be some staples. Uh, do unspeakable evils to your property. I think that this is going to be... Uh, I, the biggest problem that I have about this is I feel bad for the state of California a little bit. Like, I just... <laughs> like, this is just, like, cruel and unusual. It's inhumane punishment to the, to the governorship of California. <laughs> this would have been, like... Ron, maybe not quite on par, but if Ronald Reagan jumped back into the acting game after he stepped down as president. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, I'm not sure I should be putting the governorship of California at the same level as the president of the United States, but you get you get my point. Oh, oh I get it. I get it. That's where, that's where we are with The Last Stand starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. The, I, I don't know. I got nothing else to say on this one. To that note, which <laughs> I don't know how uh, it's a kind of an obscure jump, but I found this very interesting that, um, do you remember the movie that came out probably, uh, I'd say 15 years ago or so, Albert Brooks directed it called Mother. Yes. It was him and uh, Debbie Reynolds as his mother. Yes. His original choice, his original casting choice for that film was Nancy Reagan. Oh, fancy that. <laughs> yeah, isn't that interesting? It's like, you know, I mean, she had been an actress in her day. That's how she met. That's how she met Ronald and right. and uh, all that. But I, it, it would have been very interesting, just like it would have been interesting to see Ronald Reagan step back into film. It would have been very interesting to see Nancy Reagan step in. But uh, obviously, the cards were not um, uh, lining up for that to happen. I don't. Th I don't think cars line. Cards line up. It's the stars that line up. Stars line up. Cards are dealt. See, I'm turning they into are, Biff. Or they're held in a metaphors. hand. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, screen doors on a battleship and all oh, that right. whatnot. <laughs> uh, so, so the only other trailer that um, that I wanted to bring up was uh, due to an error I made last week when I was talking about the uh, the trailer for Lawless and how I had mentioned that the trailer that I saw uh, before The Born Legacy had been modified after um, the uh, horrendous occurrence in, uh, in Colorado right. at the screening of Dark Knight Rises, um, that they had modified it because there's, there's a scene in the film where um, gangsters come through a movie screen and shoot up the crowd, which is just horrible, horrible coincidence. Uh, but it was not Lawless, and I, I was wrong in in naming that as the film. It's actually Gangster Squad, the film that's uh, that's coming out with um, Sean Penn and Josh Brolin. That's the film that had that scene and is uh, it, horribly enough actually was even playing before Dark Knight Rises. I remember that. This is, uh, it's got uh, Ryan Gosling in it. Yes, uh, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. And... I, I got this so confused oh. because uh, it's the other one that has Sexy back in it. What's his, what's uh, his name? I don't think he's in it. He's not in Gangster Squad. He's in the one you got to confuse. He's in Lawless. He's in yeah, Lawless. He's in Lawless. Yeah. And I think hey. Sexy back and Gosling uh, share similar uh, characteristics. So I didn't <laughs> catch that. I gotcha. Yeah. I gotcha. What's his so, name? Sexy back? Uh, Justin Timberlake. That's the one. That's the yeah. one. I prefer Sexy Back. Yeah. Well, it, it works. And Emma Stone. People know who he's talking about. Yeah. Emma Stone in Gangster Squad, I should Emma say. Emma Stone, who has a Sexy Back. One would one would be able to comment as such. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, that is a correct... Look, we now have a follow-up and correction segment of the show. 
That's we right. should make we should make more errors like this, and then we can have a really robust corrections segment. That would be just sad. That would be a sad strategic move, I think. All right. The other, the only other thing I want to say out of sadness, and I'm sort of crossing myself insofar as you do that, talking about movies, is uh, Red Dawn, the remake. That is a sad, sad uh, remake, and it should not, it should not have been done because you don't touch the Swayze. <laughs> you don't, you don't, this is a sacrilege. It's a Swayze sacrilege. It's a Swayze religion. It was, it, yeah, I just... I, you know, I, I was sitting, I can't remember who I was sitting next to when I saw the trailer, but the response was, they're remaking that? I know, it, you what can hear thinking? it. It's a collective, it, it is a collective guffaw. It's a horrible, yeah. horrible thing that they're doing. It's just like, you know, as long as we're going to be talking about, you know, what, what IP we're going to start remaking, this is, this is like so far at the bottom of the list of, of where you would even start to talk about remaking a movie. Well, it's going to turn into another Total Recall. Yeah, I had some sadness about that. Yeah, I know. Guado. A lot of people have. Guado. God. Yeah. Don't, just, just don't touch the... Ugh, Guado. All right. That's all I wanted to say. I don't want to belabor Red Dawn. I feel like we've I've said my piece. All right. That's well, all I want to talk about. But I will it. tell you this. What I'm excited about is I downloaded the, uh, the book of uh, the other movie that we're very excited about. Um, what book is that? You know, we talked about it. It's the I now see. I suddenly can't remember the name of it. Uh, we talked about it la uh, last week, I think, on the show. It was the trailer, the trailer with the Tom Hanks and the Wachowskis. Oh, Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas. I've started Cloud Atlas. That's oh, the wonderful. Like three pages into it. The is first it three as pages. Long as the uh, the the movie makes it out to be long and sprawling, and it, and I, it feels it feels sprawling. I don't get the. The, uh, it, it feels sprawling and not not particularly huge, but but then you know I've been reading, um, I, I I've been reading some really really epic uh, epic reads, and so this it doesn't really compare to some of the stuff I've been kind of working through the Pandora Pandora's um, Pandora Star and Judas Unchained. I mean these are epic giant giant epic. Uh, reads and these are you know i think cloud atlas is like half as long as those so this feels pretty short by comparison hmm. um so well i'm certainly looking forward to it and i look forward to hearing your thoughts when yeah. you finish the book yeah no i i'm but i gotta finish it before when's it come out next year october no it's, oh, this, it's october. this october so i gotta hurry yeah you do okay i'm gonna that'll be my next one okay so what are we talking about tonight tonight we're starting a new series i love this we're kicking off a new series it's like it's like uh, launching a ship. It is. It's exciting. And uh, this is going to be a great one to get out of harbor. Uh, you know, some of our series are, you know, like hopping in the motorboat and cruising around the harbor and then and uh, docking. This, this one feels more like, uh, you know, a big ocean liner and we're really traversing some, some uh, big waters. Yes. Yes. It's, that was good. Did you see what happened there? I, I feel like I set you up. This was like a, the perfect t-ball game. I set you up great. with the little ship thing and then you just took it. <laughs> you owned that metaphor. I love that. That's okay. So here's what we need to do. Uh, first, uh, this the series that we are launching here is the Richard Zanuck series. Yes, uh, and yes. the late great Richard D. Zanuck. Why you actually you sent me an email and you said we definitely need to do Richard Zanuck, and I would very much love to hear you say uh, why. This was cut several weeks ago. Yeah, he he just passed away at the uh, toward the end of July, and. Uh, you know, his 
body of work, I mean, first of all, he's, you know, he's a Zanuck. He's from a, a pretty important family in the world of film. His father, Daryl Zanuck, essentially was a one of the founders of 20th Century Fox. And, you know, he went on to um, take, become a member of the, of the Fox team. He was the, uh, the vice president uh, for a while, and uh, he moved up. And in the, I think it was uh, the late 60s, there was quite a, uh, quite a mess over there at Fox, and um, he had to leave. And, but then he left and uh, uh, with his uh, uh, friend and partner, David Brown, uh, created an amazing producing company and went on to pr produce numerous, numerous amazing films. And even beyond that, when that partnership dissolved and, and you know, with different relationships and whatnot, he, he was producing all the way until the end. His last film that he produced um, came out just this year, in fact. It was uh, Dark Shadows, Tim Burton's uh, film, which probably not the greatest film to end on. But um, regardless, he has so many amazing films under his belt as producer and then also as films that he saw through when he was running Fox. And uh, so, I mean, he's, he's a big name in the film business and having had a hand in so many films, I, after he passed, I was, I really felt that it was an important person to talk about. Important, uh, I, I think, is the word, and I, I had lost context, and sometimes it's hard to, you know, you know, when you look at directors, it's it's really easy to, you know, you 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 say Steven Spielberg, and you get this sort of sense of their body of work just from the name, um, mm -hmm. you know, those those movies kind of for, for guys like us, kind of in our generation, they that that really speaks to us, and you know, but but you lose. I think you lose a little bit of of context when you start dropping these producers' names, and um, and and until you see the list of the work that that they shepherded to screen, uh, you you don't really have a, a solid perspective of um, I don't know what the of, of sort of a story arc of the stories that they are the that uh, the stories of the films and how they relate to the sort of mission of, of what they are. Uh, of of what they're trying to share with the world, and and in the case of Zanuck, and and particularly the film we're starting with, uh, I, I think we see um, we see a guy who found a story and used it to put a stake in the ground for his career, and uh, and and you can see the messages that he is uh, that that he is allowed telling through this film tonight, um, uh, sort of replay. Um, throughout his career. And I'm, I'm very excited to, to see more of these movies again and look at them in this, in this light. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. It's, it's, it is exciting to look at it in this light because I mean, what you just said is, is, is very, um, true when you're looking at films, it's so easy, you know, thinking of the auteur theory or, or, you know, looking at the cinematography or all these different elements within the film itself. It's so easy to talk about those elements how it was directed, how the actors performed, how the DP shot it, what the writer was doing. But oftentimes you don't really look behind the scenes and look at somebody who's really kind of pulling the strings, trying to make everything happen. Right. And this, this is a man who is a master of it. You know, he really learned from his father and, uh, and really figured out what to do at an early age. So tonight's film is um, the, the 1959 uh, productions called Compulsion, 
directed mm-hmm. by Richard Fleischer, produced obviously by Richard Zanuck, written by Richard Murphy. And uh, I, you know, I feel like I want to read the the billing in reverse order. Um, you know, I think Dean Stockwell, Bradford Dillman, and uh, and finally in the last uh, sort of half of the play, Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, who ended up, I believe, winning? Uh, did he win Best Actor for this? I believe. No, or no, um, he did not. I don't believe he did. But um, uh, both Dean Stockwell and Bradford Dillman uh, together won Best Actor right. at uh, the Cannes Film Festival. Absolutely, <clears throat> absolutely stunning film. You it, had not, you had not this seen this either, right? I hadn't seen. Yeah when we decided to do this series, but because it was his first film, you know, uh, felt it was kind of an important one to talk about. And I can't remember, had you seen this one before? No, I had not seen it. And you know, I, this is one that I thought I had seen, but again, I think I was, I was looking at the, uh, you know, we run into this before. I'm sure it was a compulsion of a different genre. <laughs> so it was, um, for me, this was one of those amazing finds that, um, I hadn't really heard of. I mean, I'd heard of um, very loosely the case in which it's based on, but I hadn't. I hadn't really heard that much of the film, and I completely fell in love with it. Oh my goodness! Did it? It uh, not. I mean, I didn't just fall in love with it. It bowled me over. I mean, it, yeah. I, I felt like. Um, all right. So, so before we get into the into the showering with love, uh, the the case that we're talking about is a it it is based, and I would say loosely, but it's really not um, uh, very tightly based on the Leopold and Loeb murder trial mm-hmm. from nineteen twenty four. Right, and and uh, the the book uh, written on the murder trial was uh, by Meyer Levin. It was of the same name, Compulsion, in 1956, and they made the movie very quickly, uh, 1959, covering this uh, this trial. All the names have been changed, but as you as you sort of study into the actual murder trial uh, or the murder case, uh, the original case, it, they stuck very very closely to the story. A lot closer. I, it's it's very similar to um, like Hitchcock's film rope mm-hmm. and um, also loosely yeah. based uh, much more loosely i think based on leopold and Loeb. exactly yeah there there are a couple other films that have been made that, i mean even you could look at um a film like uh, murder by numbers um a film that came out in uh 10 years ago now um not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination um sandra bullock and um i can't remember the other guys who are in it but um, again, it's the same sort of thing where it's a couple um, young boys who feel they're more intelligent than anyone else and, and want to commit the perfect crime. And uh, I felt, uh, you know, I've seen Murder by Numbers, I've seen Rope, um, and just reading the story of the Leopold and Loeb case, this film really, like you said, was a, a, a very accurate depiction of what really happened in the trial. So I feel that because this movie was such a find for us, it's it, it, there stands a good chance that folks may not have seen it. Uh, you want to walk through a little bit of the of the the murder itself, the story. Uh, uh, well, let me just read the the plot summary that uh, that somebody conveniently wrote up on on Wikipedia. Um, Artie Strauss and Judd Steiner kill a boy on his way home from school in order to commit the perfect crime. 
Strauss tries to cover it up, but they are caught when police find a key piece of evidence, Steiner's glasses, which he left at the scene of the crime. Famed attorney Jonathan Wilk, played by Orson Welles, takes their case, saving them from hanging by making an impassioned closing argument against capital punishment. And there you have it. So that's the long and the short of the story right. there. More the short. Yeah, more the short. <laughs> uh, there's definitely, there's definitely, uh, I could go my normal long-winded route. <laughs> well, I, I am a fan of long-winded, but, uh, you know, especially when it's yours. <laughs> well, thank but, you. But the, uh, so, so these, the, the nut of this movie is these are two guys uh, who conceive of themselves as being remorseless. Mm-hmm. And they are students of Nietzsche and the the and Nietzsche's model of the Superman. Mm-hmm. And as such, they begin studying uh, and uh, making off or, or making getting away with uh, you know petty crime, and that that petty crime uh, you know leads to bigger and bigger crime, and eventually they end up you know uh, preparing for and kidnapping and and murdering uh, you know a, a wealthy. Uh, the son of a wealthy family, and that's that's uh, that is the tale of the Leopold and Loeb murder trial. And the way you know these guys uh, uh, in the movie, they're renamed Artie Strauss and Judd Steiner, are um, you know they are very wealthy, uh, and they come from um, you know this they come from the highbrow world of, of you know in the case of the true story, I think wasn't it uh, Loeb's uh, father was the like president of Sears Roebuck at one point or something like that. I mean, I we have to find that, but, but it, they come from a lot of money. And so the idea of these guys, this was that story of these guys who come from money and are bored and fashion themselves as remorseless. And so they, they commit these crimes just to see if they can get away with it. Yeah. And, and they were very intelligent. They were, um, I mean, little doogie housers, really. They yeah. were, they were in college, but, um, I, I think they were both, you know, 18, 19, very, I, I think one of them, he said, didn't he say he graduated from school at, at four, 14? He went to college yeah. at 14, yeah. Yeah. What's interesting about this film, and I wonder, I'm interesting in your comment on this. This is, uh, if I did not know that this was a true story before I saw it. Did you know, had you read up on it before you saw it? Uh, I didn't. Um no, I think I did loosely, but I, I didn't know how accurately it was going to be depicting the true story. Okay. So, but I think I had uh, read somewhere that it was this um, based on a case that you know was vaguely familiar to me. Okay. I I did not know at all, and as such, I think I didn't I didn't buy it. Uh, I didn't buy the the character sort of motivations, and I didn't buy, um, you know, I I actually bought the relationship between you know Dean Stockwell's uh, Judd and and Bradford Dillman Artie. Uh, I, I I bought their relationship between them. You know, I thought that dynamic was was good, but I didn't buy the, you know, I didn't buy the motivation and the Nietzsche stuff and all this. And I just thought, well, that's over overplayed, and and they're really trying to hammer home a point that it that ends up being you know sort of stereotypical. Of course, that's it was defining the stereotype maybe. Uh, and then I read, I started researching the movie, found out it was true, and just how true it was to the point of Leopold and Loeb, you know, studying Nietzsche and practicing, you know, crime as a result of them trying to become the Superman. And I had to go back and watch the movie again. 
Yeah. Because uh, it, it absolutely changes it. Even the tagline on the poster, you know why we did it? Because we damn well felt like doing it. Yeah. Is, it's creepy. It's creepy. It is made much creepier, I think, within the context of the of the murder trial when you know it's real. Yeah. So much so that, uh, well, I mean, obviously, um, the book was based on their case. Mm -hmm. um, Leopold um, actually was still alive when uh, in prison when the when the case. Um, uh, no, actually, sorry, he was he had been like a um, Loeb was killed in prison. Mm -hmm. um, about I think twelve years after um, the trial and after he was put in jail, he was killed in nineteen thirty six. Um, Leopold lived, um, I think, until nineteen seventy one, actually. Right. And he was when did he get out of prison? He was released on parole in nineteen fifty eight, and um, went on i think he moved out of the country he, yeah he moved to puerto rico and tried setting up another life there and then when the movie was coming out and the book was coming out he tried to block the release of it based on you know uh, the grounds of invasion of privacy defamation making money from his life story all that sort of stuff i don't believe that he succeeded but oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's amazing how how uh, how long he was around, and that he it it was so accurate that he was he was fighting it. So, so what is it about the the construction of the film that that you that that you fell in love with? You know, it's it's a fascinating film because first off, they never show the murder, right? And I found that really fascinating. Where it's not a film about the murder itself; it's a film about the the psyche of these two men and everything they go through, everything they're thinking about, mostly after the murder has happened and their relationship and all the way through the trial. It's really about them and, and how they see the world. And it's really it, what I find so fascinating is, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting film because it kind of the first half of it is them before and after the murder. Um, and the investigation leading up to their capture. Well, and, and, then, and that's an interesting point, right? Well, finish your sentence. I'm sorry. Oh, and then the second half of the film is really more like that's the point when their lawyer comes in, um, Orson Welles, and comes in to handle their case and uh, it, the trial. And so it's kind of split down the middle between those two halves. So uh, I, the open of the film... Uh, is an interesting, I, I think the way they handle the murder, as you're talking about, is really interesting structurally because it opens and they're in their, uh, they're in their little two-seater and they are, they're going back and forth between how they want to handle, um, you know, running over a drunk mm -hmm. in the late at night and they're, you know, do they want to hit him? Do they want to not hit him? And I wanted to do it because I, I, because I damn well could. Yeah. And, uh, and then we go to the credits and then we come back, and now we're in the throes of their game. Yeah, now the murder's already happened. Right, the murder happened during the credits. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I think what you know, I think your I think your point is right on. And I I, I think the, the this is a this ends up being a movie about sort of um, you know both sides of of 
this case end up gaming one another, right? Because the first is, did these guys, were they able to put together enough of a perfect crime uh, to, you know, they, they kill the kid, they dispose of the body, they pour the acid on it uh, to, you know, make it so you can't identify the body. Did, were they able to do the perfect crime they feel so confident and you get to really sort of revel in this disgusting display of ego, uh, particularly the ego of Artie Strauss and and um, the sort of cold intelligence of Judd Steiner. Played, I can't, I mean, Dean Stockwell, this is unreal performance by Dean Stockwell. I didn't know the guy had it in him. Oh, I tell you, this uh, he just jumped up very high on my list of of brilliant actors. Brilliant. Watching this performance was so um, creepy and haunting and affecting, and just played so um, simply. You know, I just really all of the things that he does with his face just really. Oh, it it really did. And so did these guys put together enough of the perfect crime in order to get away with it and to to be able to sort of live with the pride that they had cultivated? And then we have this wonderful, uh, you know, performance uh, by the sort of the legal team and the police and E.G. Marshall as the district attorney uh, in this wonderful example of the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, you know, trying to get these guys to crack on one another. Um, and, and that was just beautifully architected sequence of events and, and how these, uh, you know, uh, you know, that, that with just perfectly tight, uh, script from Richard Murphy, uh, that, that allowed this thing to unravel all around the glasses. Yeah. Uh, and and that ends up being what pulls it apart. Yeah, and it's 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 fantastic, and the and the whole way that that's played, I think, is is so well done. The whole idea that uh, I mean, they they it's very clear when um, E. G. Marshall, uh, uh, District Attorney Ham, um, or Horn, sorry, um, when he provides the evidence that they have to be Steiner's glasses because there were only three of them made or three of them sold with this particular type of hinge and and one guy's out of the country and the other person has theirs so they have to be his it's i mean it's it's brilliant the way they pin it on him and you know the way that he reacts to everything is is done so coolly and uh, he plays this kind of superman role so well and the last bit of the film with Orson Welles about the glasses and God and, and who was it whose hand knocked those glasses out of your pocket. The, his, the look on his face as he thinks about that and kind of takes it in and realizes, you know, the position that he's in. And it's very likely that, that what um, his attorney, Jonathan Wilk is saying is right. And it's just, it's so well done. I, I really liked it. I, so the the role of uh, Orson Welles in this film, uh, obviously, I mean, he as soon as he you know enters the frame, uh, you know, there's a there's a chill in the air. You know, he comes <laughs> in and it's like it's sort of you kind of get the feeling that uh, particularly from the first sequence when he when he walks into that room full and and he's just the the district attorney is just handed over the the floor to questions for five minutes from the reporters and and uh, other investigators uh, 
and he's very proud because really, you know, the district attorney has has done everything by the book. Like he is, he has done, uh, he hasn't hurt these guys. He hasn't coerced them. He hasn't beaten them up. He ran a an intelligent and clever investigation and got them to turn on one another and tell the story. That right. was it. Right. And and it was, you know, it leads to the death penalty. That's where they were going with this. Right. And then Orson Welles come in and he, he walks in the room and he tells everybody to stop. And I found myself thinking, I wonder if he knows what movie he's in. <laughs> you know, like he walks in, he so owns the screen that he could have been in in any film in that yeah. scene. Uh, you name it, generic lawyer film. He may have actually thought he was in a jungle at the time. <laughs> well, he he commands such presence. And the great thing about Orson Welles is he always has some different nose every time he appears. <laughs> so he's got this different nose on because he, he always felt like cha changing his nose helped him find the character, as as I recall. And um, And he's got that kind of kind of gray and greasy looking hair and he, he just looks world weary yes he just looks like i mean the, the way he plays jonathan wilk their attorney is so well done it's just this world weary character who's so smart but who has seen so much evil in the world and is just tired but he he believes in his job and he's going to do his job and he still has questions about what's right and what's wrong but he's going to do his job and he's going to do it well he uh you know he ended up in uh, playing uh, a a difficult uh, or a challenging real life character the the you know they changed the name in the film but the the uh, you know his role was based on uh Clarence Darrow Mm -hmm. who, um, you know, is a, uh, uh, I, I'm not sure which he's more widely known for, you know, uh, defending, uh, scopes in the scopes monkey trial, um, uh, or, or just, you know, his role in the, the founding of, um, the ACLU. Uh, but he is, you know, he has been a long defendant of sort of the rights of the accused and, uh, and fair justice. And that's what Orson Welles took took on. That's the mantle he took on in this in this film, and and uh, it it all sort of culminates in a, a fantastic monologue at the end of the film, um, you know, where Orson Welles, as you know, Darrow in this case, pleads his case that that you know we are, uh, you know, we're no better than they are if we you know if we resort to killing them. Is it not it's enough an amazing, to lock them away? It's an amazing monologue. And I found myself agreeing with him. I mean, I, I thought the crime that that uh, Steiner and um, uh, Strauss committed was atrocious. But by the end of Wilk's speech, I was in complete agreement with him. I was. You know what I found really interesting about this? And I, I think this is a sign of... Um, you know, as we've been doing more and more of these old, you know, these movies from the 40s and 50s, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know, then we, we do some of the car chase movies of the 60s and we move into the present. I think one of the things that I'm taking away from the, the sort of uh, passage of time uh, is an illustration of the great patience of 
these are, you know, these fifties, forties and fifties directors, these early sort of film directors. Mm -hmm. And I think Richard Fleischer, um, I think this sequence at the end shows an unbelievable restraint. He could have gone for, um, you know, the, the quick uh, clippy sort of, let's just get Orson Welles to hit the big high notes and the emotional high notes and move on. But he, I mean, this is a soliloquy. This is, I, I don't know. Do you know at the, off the top of your head how long they let him talk at the end? Boy, it feels like, you know, 15 minutes. It sure feels it really like does. It, it. It does feel like, it, but, but not, I'm, and I'm, I'm not, I'm sure that's not the case. I feel like it's shorter than that, but I, yeah, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to bring it up kind of while we're talking. But one, one of the things that I, I think really highlights this is, is just Fleischer's unbelievable sense of restraint in, in not going for the easy buck, but in letting this speech play out because it builds in such a sophisticated way. And by the end, you're, I think you're really hit it. By the end, you are at the mercy of this electrifying plea. As as you know, Orson Welles is is practically begging not just the judge because he's already had the the jury dismissed, which is a brilliant bit of writing in itself. Yeah. But he is pleading with the courtroom, with the the reporters and the the you know every the audience in in the courtroom, uh, and and you just feel like he is an island. He is a man alone. That even the guilty expect themselves to be killed at this point, mm -hmm. and that Orson Welles well, is alone. And, and as he starts his speech, you know, you still have all those naysayers in the courtroom. Every time he uh, says something, yeah. somebody you know has a has a wry comment to make about it. You know, and by the but by the end of his speech, it's silent. Yeah, it is. Uh particularly moving um it, it's no uh you know i mean he's no it, it's no tom cruise uh jack nicholson kind of <laughs> moment you know it is it shows a, a much greater kind of uh, spiritual sympathy yeah uh, it's and it's what's interesting is Artie's reaction to that as soon as um the judge makes his ruling and, you know, he's just like, what, after, after three months and that's it? You know, it's, it, it's so dismissive of everything yeah. that Orson, well or Orson Welles' character, Wilk, just did for them to keep them alive and to keep them from getting killed. You know, he's just, he's so dismissive of that. And he would, he says, I'd, I'd rather have just hung yeah and you know i what's i i think that's part of the artistry of wells portrayal of this character and i think it's it's very much it very much embodies and i'm no darrow expert i'm absolutely not but uh but in my reading um you know particularly historical sort of uh take on on scopes you, you sort of get this impression that darrow's motivations are are you know more complex and and i think wells portrayal is it really illustrates that he took this case and he made that plea not really for those guys uh even in so much as he he made it for himself mm -hmm. because of his belief he yeah, knows I mean, these guys are terrible says, you know after Artie makes that comment he says well i wasn't expecting you to get on your yeah. knees and thank me you know <laughs> this yeah. was like uh, you know it was it was a chance to show that you know he does believe that these rich kids have as much right to a trial to be 
to let live um, locked up in jail as any of the poor people that he defends. Right. Right. So it was it was extremely powerful, uh, and and I think a real highlight of the of the film. Yeah. And he looks. I mean, by the end of the film, he looks beaten up. He yeah. Looks he really weathered. does. I mean, just it's it's interesting how much uh, winning this case takes out of him. Right. Uh, because it's 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 so challenging morally. What is really the right thing to do here? Right. He just he degrades. Mm-hmm. He absolutely degrades over time. Yeah. Uh, other highlights. Uh, what did you? Any commentary on the uh, the cinematography and the sort of shot structure? It stood out to you. It, you know, I, I, I just it, it looks it's it's great. It's done really nicely. It has a very noir feel. It's very stark in its black and whiteness. Um, there's a great little shot that you know it's it's a nice little uh, nod to the importance of the glasses in the film. Um, it's not too long and it's not done too often so it's not offensive at all but are you are you talking about the, the sh- showing the passage <laughs> of time as we we yeah. um as eg marshall's character um horn puts the glasses down on a side table and we see them and out the window and then time passes we see the room you know the outside get dark the lights turn on all that stuff and then we see the character's reflections appear. Um, E.G. Marshall's character appears in one lens and uh, Dean Stockwell's character appears in the other as they continue their conversation hours after it started. It's a nice little touch, just kind of showing, showing the passage of time, showing the importance of the glasses, and showing how everything really hinged on it. Um, it's, it's, it's a fun little trick that they do in the film. Um, other than that, it just, it really has a great noir feel and, and it's, it's nothing too complex. And, you know, Richard Fleischer, um, who directed this was never really known for a kind of an auteur type of director being that sort of director. He was always very much kind of a, um, I don't want to call him a hack, but he was very much just a, um, a director that producers brought on and he made, very satisfying films for the studios, but I don't think you could go through his, his body of work and be able to say, Oh, I, this is clearly, um, a rich in, in Richard Fleischer's, uh, catalog. I don't think you could do that. Um, but after doing this film, um, he ended up coming on board quite a few films for Fox because this was, um, a a big success for him. It, it was, um, uh, nominated for, um, the the Palm Door at the 1955 1959 excuse me uh, Cannes Film Festival, and uh, you know he went on and directed quite a few other films with them, um, and he actually has kind of a, uh, a I guess they call it a trilogy of of uh, true crime films that he did. Um, it's I don't think it's really a trilogy, but it just happened to be three films that he made for Fox that were all in this kind of um, true uh, with true serial killers focusing on capital punishment. He did Compulsion, he did The Boston Strangler, and he did 10 Rillington Place. Um, So those three films he kind of uh, helmed. And, uh, you know, he had a long life. I mean, he went on, he was making films in the 80s. I mean, he made Conan the Destroyer, Red Sonja, Amityville 3D. I mean, he's been around a long time. And, and of course, his father is the... uh, the famous Max Fleischer, the animator. Those were some Schwarzenegger films. 
Uh, what, you know, as long as we're talking about uh, about sort of where the where this film fits, you know, we started uh, talking about Richard Zanuck. How do you feel like this uh, this this film ended up sort of defining the the Richard Zanuck story? Well, Richard Zanuck, you know, he my understanding is he came on this film. Um, he was already working with his father at um, at Fox. But his father was, um, I believe he was out of town working on a project in Africa in 1959. Um, and so his dad basically gave him a chance to produce this film. And he brought it in under budget, ahead of schedule. Uh, the two stars won um, Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival. It did really well. Uh, I mean, for for the sort of film that it was, you know. It, um, it came, like I said, it came in under budget. Um, it made uh, a decent amount of money and it got a claim. That's exactly what um, he needed to do for his first film to continue working as at the level that he was. And I think he went on from here to really find smart stories um, that interested people with interesting characters and, and, let the directors kind of do do what they needed to do to tell the story, and um, I, and he also had a real eye for talent, and I, I think he found it in the actors in this film, and um, I think he like I, I mean I just said Richard Fleischer I don't think is really kind of a an auteur type of director, but he's a very um, gifted director in the sense that he knows how to put a story on film that works really well. He's he's he strikes me as sort of a, a kind of a utility player for a, a studio utility player. Yeah, uh, you know, here's a guy who's he's he's not going to to be a, you know he's not going to be a pillar, but he's going to be a um, you know he's going to be a foundation of of solid films. And in this case, in certainly in the case of Compulsion, uh, this is a movie that has has boy in my book really withstood the withstood the test. I think this movie you know people need to see this movie. You know, something else that we didn't really bring up yet about the actors and the performances that I really found fascinating about this film is the nature of kind of the, this homosexual subtext between the two characters and this, this very strange kind of sadomasochistic relationship that they have with one another. Hmm. Talk, talk about that. It, it, well, I just find it so interesting that to me, it feels like there is a homosexual relationship between these two characters the way that a lot or or at least there they they haven't addressed it between the two of them but there's something there um the way that judd needs to be commanded by artie the way that he has to always be with artie the way that he reacts um when people bring up um you know why don't you do anything like you know hang out with girls or play sports. It just seems so interesting mm -hmm. that, I mean, this came out in 1959. They, you know, they're obviously still being careful about talking about this too blatantly in films, but it still comes across. To me, it seemed like they were saying, you know, this is a guy who has more of homosexual tendencies than, than not. And the whole idea of, when Artie, uh, there's a girl in the film uh, played by uh, Diane Varsi. Um, she plays Ruth Evans in this film. Um, Diane Varsi was, I, I think, most 
well known around this time. I, I mean, she gets second billing in the film. She's uh, most well known for this time because of Peyton Place. And I think mm -hmm. that was a big draw to get some women into the film and to watch the movie. But um, there's a scene where Judd, who is attracted to Ruth, is going to meet her and take her bird watching. And Artie essentially commands him to rape her. And which is another really interesting thing for the time. Mm -hmm. And and when Judd is kind of, you know, shocked by the idea of it, Artie says, you know, haven't we said we want to explore all human experience? Now that could could be rape, but on the other hand, it could also be, you know, sexual relations with a girl. You know, it's it, there's so many interesting little things throughout this film that when you watch it, it really does end up having this very interesting homosexual relationship between these two guys and the way that that is sadomasochistically played out between the two of them. And it's and even going so far, and I don't know how this plays into what I just said, but it is a very weird relationship that Judd has with his brother. His brother very much almost plays more of a father figure than his father does, who doesn't even come into the story until after Judd's already been arrested. Yes. Yes. Okay, so two points. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, his brother, uh, what's his name, the actor? Is it uh, Richard Anderson? He plays Max Steiner. Max Steiner, Richard Anderson. Yeah. yeah. He was the uh, always looking for Ilsa in... Uh, Indiana Jones. Right? Was he? Wasn't that him? I didn't huh? check this. It's just all it suddenly came to me. It's just it's just come to me out of the blue. A bolt of inspiration. Please go find that out. But the my point was about the, the I, I think it is it's an interesting take on um uh, you know, I I uh, the, the sexual deviance in a time when we are not accustomed to talking about sexual deviance. Um, yeah. Because these guys weren't, I mean, they, they weren't, I, I, they weren't just, you know, latent homosexuals. Right. Right. Like right. that's, that's, that's sort of a different thing. And this is, and I, I, I think this is, they were latent sexual deviants and masochists who didn't know how to channel that energy and it turned into psychopathic behavior, right? Like yeah, it channeled yeah. into psychopathic behavior. And I think that's, that is an, a really interesting commentary on, you, you know, at now with the benefit of, you know, 60 plus years of hindsight to look at how we have, you know, transitioned uh, that dialogue uh, about sexual deviance uh, to, you know, over time. And, and, you know, we end up with the, um, you know, put the motion on its skin and you have, uh, um, <laughs> you know, that, that dealing with, uh, um, you know, the sexual deviance in, um, See, why can't I remember? I can, re I could recite the entire speech, but I won't, I can't remember that. It's a Hannibal movie, the first one. Oh, Silence of the Silence Lambs. of the Lambs, yeah. right? Uh, and so we end up looking at, at sort of the deviance in Silence of the Lambs, and it deals with sort of transsexual uh, uh, deviance, mm -hmm. and and um, you know, now how does that play out? Now that we are culturally much more uh, sort of adept at talking about and understanding and and being present and and accepting of homosexuality in a way that in 1959 we were not. Right, right. Uh, I find that, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I think it wasn't until a couple years later when um, Otto Preminger's film came out that dealt much more with uh, 
with homosexuality. I'm completely blanking on what it's called, but I think that came out in the early 60s. So yeah, this it was kind of disguised in a way, but it, I, today it seems a little more... Um, you know, interesting that it's there and 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 uh, obvious, and it's it's pretty interesting to see. Yeah, I you know I think it is. I hadn't thought a, a whole lot about it. What was the movie that you're talking about? The Preminger movie. Uh, it was um, Advice and Consent. Okay, came out in '62. Yeah. <clears throat> so. Such a fascinating film. What uh, what else do we need to cover on this film as we wrap up? Well, you know, another element of the uh, of this. The psyche of these two men is not just the can we get away with it, but I, I the other thing I found so fascinating, and these are there's so many interesting psychological elements of these characters that just keep happening throughout the film that just uh, are so interesting to watch. And the other one that came up for me is the the idea of the celebrity and feeling important when Artie, once the police start investigating it, how Artie starts helping the cops, um, not yeah. really helping them draw him to himself as a suspect, but pointing out other people and just... Oh, when he starts he, setting up he, teachers. Yeah, setting up teachers. And he creates this this important um, part that he plays now in the investigation. And I, you know, my understanding of, of, of killers is this is some t- something that they do where they actually try to help and um, it's interesting, interesting to see it play out here. But what I found interesting is how it's this status of importance that he he feels and he places upon it. And um, even when he invites the press into his house to use the phone and his friend Sid, who is in the press, but uh, also his boss. And it, it's just it's haunting that the psychology that he has when he's doing this sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's really true. That sort of need to be present, and uh, when and the the realization when, um, you know, when Stockwell or when Jud- Judzi, uh, you know, says it's you know my the guy I was with is Artie Strauss, and the the uh, detective turns around and says that's the guy who's been helping us. Yeah, like yeah. the the collective kick to the gut, you know, that yeah. as if this has never happened before. Right. I'm so surprised. <laughs> it was uh, it was fantastic. That's yeah. a, it was a great twist. Yeah. That's yeah, a great great film. The um uh last little bit of trivia that I think is just uh fun aside from the the wonderful cast. I mean there's uh, I don't think there's any mel uh any lemons in the cast at all. I was going to say melons. <laughs> there are no cantaloupes. There's no lemons and there's no melons either. Um, uh, I think everyone was so great, but I I absolutely have to point out that Gavin McLeod is in this. I know. Gavin McLeod. It's like, I just, I just wanted to go watch the love boat again. Okay. So (laughs) I was, I was clicking around looking at the cast, you know, cast bio pictures and things like that. And, uh, and one of the things that you will notice is if you go to Gavin McLeod's Wikipedia page mm-hmm. did you go to his page I, I didn't but i will do it because you will notice when you look at the bio picture in his main wikipedia bio picture what glasses is he wearing <laughs> he's wearing the killer's glasses. gavin mcleod oh did goodness. it all along it was actually gavin mcleod <laughs> 
reopen. Oh, this is a, this man. is one for the cold case team. That is funny. <laughs> that is too yeah. funny. Yeah. Too funny. All right. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. The cast is is fantastic, including Gavin McLeod. I think E.G. Marshall uh, was he set the stage really for the the, the perfectly crafty uh, and well intentioned district attorney. And uh, you know what? I, I love these old movies because we talk about you know these actors who who build the what is now a stereotype like this is that's one and uh it was it was fantastic and and again dean stockwell holy smokes yeah i mean this this is i mean he owns this film i mean aside from orson wells who owns any film he's in but man is he good he um you know looking at his He's got one of those stunningly long filmographies. You know, his his career has been <laughs> exceptional. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so we're going to be starting the Dean Stockwell series uh, <laughs> for the year 2015. That's pretty much all we're going to do is <laughs> Dean Stockwell movies. <laughs> uh, he has been a busy man. And we're going to do we're going to do Dune three times because it's that good. that's all i got to say you want to talk about where people can find you yeah people can find me uh, at soda creek film on twitter uh, or they can find me over at facebook at soda creek film and of course they can always find me at raspixel.tv slash mwl for Mm -hmm. movies we like Mm -hmm. and you find me at pete wright uh on the twitter or uh you know at rashpixel.tv tv slash mwl and uh rashpixel.com i post pictures there would love to have you stop by and look at them that's all yeah, I got. And, leave it, and leave us some feedback on itunes and ratings and you know what i think is another great thing that people can do pete what as long as we're asking I think they could go to our Facebook page and if if they're listening to our stories or they're following any of our things, share it with your friends on your Facebook pages. You should do that, people. That would be so... How easy is that? It's a click. You don't even yeah. have to say anything. Just share it. That's, That's right. enough. Get That's us out love. into the world. And you know what else? Uh, Andy has been uh, posting these, uh, you know, uh, polls. You should you should participate in a poll. Let us know what movies you're interested in seeing. Uh, that that helps us build our our library for the film board. If you haven't caught the most uh, recent film board uh, episode on Google Plus, we have posted it in the feed. You should check it out there and and hear what the uh, what the film board thought of uh, last week's big opener, The Bourne Legacy. Mm-hmm. That was good talk. It was indeed deep. Uh, it was deep a little thanks. Uh, technically troubling. Yeah, well, for you, a lot for you. You you became kind of a foil, comic foil. I'm not gonna lie to you. You played your role. Yeah, I don't know if that's what I wanted to be. Look but. look at the smart guy trying to talk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so deep thanks to uh, uh, Mike Evans and uh, um, Steve Sarmento and Chad Stoops for jumping in to have a conversation about that. And check that out. That's all I got. I'm out of here. Wonderful conversation. We'll hit up Likewise. more Zanuck next week. Do are we gonna tell people what we're gonna do? Next week, we're going to tap into 1973's amazing film, Best Picture winner, The Sting. I love that movie. Mm-hmm. Till next week, Andrew. And how. And how. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... 
we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>